Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, James the Sixth. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of Scots from Kenneth McAlpin to James the Sixth. Oh, that's... Which, uh, yeah, here we are. Here we are. We are at the end. We are at our final monarch in the Scottish series. What a long journey it's been. It has indeed. And it's been quite a long journey since uh, our last uh, podcast in this series. But, I mean, we've got fairly decent excuses. We've both been rather busy. Yeah. Ali, why have you been too busy to be doing uh I have been um, opening up a coffee shop. Mm. I say shop is a bit grand, isn't it? It's a cart outside the train station. <laughs> But uh, it has nonetheless been um, all I've been able to do recently. Because you've literally been building it by hand. Yes. I, I can't remember when I had a day off, Graham. <laughs> I really... I, just was, I mean, Christmas, but then before then, terrifically busy. You've been swanning around doing nothing. Really. Well, what? I've uh, I've not been setting up any uh, beverage carts no. at the station, but uh, I have joined Ali in the Dynasty Stakes. Bum, ba, da, ba! Uh, I also have a son and heir. <laughs> Congratulations from everyone around the world who listens to our little podcast. <laughs> Congratulations. Any name? Well, in true Rax Factor style, he yep. doesn't yet have a name. Jolly good. Best way, I say. That's interesting that we started this series, you know, footloose and fancy free. <laughs> and now it's eight o'clock bedtimes. And... <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> And Ovaltine. And we're also in a new recording studio. This is also big news, so I wonder how it sounds. It's in my shed it at is. the bottom of the garden. Yeah. So um, we might not have as many motorbikes, which is just a shame. You know. I mean, we're as close to a road, really, but it's just... Um, we've just got a couple of houses between. We've got one final monarch in the Scottish series to review. Yeah. Who's he again? It's James VI. Oh, of course it is. Or the first of England, of mm. course. He is the first monarch that we are reviewing for the second time. But And I, I absolutely mean this when I say <laughs> I have no idea what we could get got last time. People will believe you. <laughs> oh, really? I just... Um, the reason we're doing James VI and we didn't stop with Mary is because James VI is King of Scots for a time before he becomes King of England. So we're uh, not going to do anyone after James because we feel we have then reviewed them, even though we could view it from the Scottish perspective. Essentially, we'd just be going over old ground. But with mm. James VI, there is a period where he is King of Scots right. alone. Okay. So he's the last one we're doing for that reason. But there will be some overlap with the English stuff. We'll give him a bit of credit 
for stuff he does as King of England that might be, you know, yeah. impressive. But we maybe won't go into as much detail as we did. So if you want more detail on James as King of England, listen to the James yeah. I bracket sixth episode. So this is sixth brackets first. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so as it has been a while, yes, a little bit of backgroundy stuff to uh, catch up on where we've mm. been. Last time, over three episodes, we did Mary Queen of Scots. Yes. Um, she grew up in France for much of her life and mm. became the Queen Consort of France. Oh, Quite impressively. Coming up. Yep. Um, but before she returns to Scotland, in fact, the year before she returns, there is the Reformation in Scotland, where they switch from being Catholic to Protestant. In a big way, though. In a very big way. The uh, Scottish Presbyterian Kirk is rather more austere than the Church of England and its mm-hmm. Protestantism. So mm-hmm. when Mary comes back and is this sort of Frenchified Catholic queen, they don't particularly like her. She came back in 1561, tried to be... She stays Catholic, but she accepts that Scotland is Protestant. Yeah. Tries to find a bit of a middle way, but really her priority is to achieve recognition as the successor in England to Elizabeth I. Yeah. Because dynastically, if Elizabeth doesn't have any children, the next in line will actually be Mary, Queen of Scots. Okay. And the problem for Mary really came with men. I mean, I suppose literally almost everybody else apart from Elizabeth was a man in terms of story, but it was her husband's. She married Lord Darnley, which upset a lot of people and uh, proved quite turbulent, upset the balance at court. And then when Darnley was assassinated, Mary married Earl Bothwell, who was thought widely to be the man who murdered Lord Darnley. Yeah, yeah. Which was a bit scandalous. It's just awful choice of men that were in poor... So 1567, the nobles took to war, ostensibly against Bothwell and to free Mary, but after Bothwell was exiled, they imprisoned Mary in Lochleven Castle, and at the age of 24, she was forced to abdicate. I don't think I'd appreciated how young she was, how quickly all that happened. So, Mary was no longer queen, and instead we have James VI. Her son. Her son, indeed. Um, Son of Mary Queen of Scots and her second husband, Lord Darnley, Henry Stuart Lord Darnley. And he was born on 19th of June, 1566. So when he becomes king in 1567, he is 13 months old. Gosh, runs in the family. Much older than his mother by a good year, but nevertheless a bit young. A little too young. I mean, Mm. mine's about 13 months old. Well, do you think he's... I mean, he's moving around and taking control of things quite a lot. uh, Yeah. If you'd swap the control, the uh, TV remote with a scepter, he'd, he'd <laughs> be <quite> fine. <laughs> you can say T, poo, tractor. I mean, pretty much start paying his way, I reckon. He's not pulling his weight. But how is he going to look on the card? Oh, yeah. Now, I must confess that I forgot to bring my Scottish pack of Heritage uh, Limited playing cards, but Ali has an English pack, and I can reveal that the artist has not bothered to do a different <laughs> image. <laughs> I'm never without them, Graham. I, in fact, I had two packs. You did? Uh, okay, so here he goes. Oh, he's cut quite a figure. Mm. Um, and from what I remember of his actual face, from when I met him, <laughs> that's pretty accurate. He's got quite a sort of sharp features. Mm. I, I mean, I, what are they playing at with this whole tights and what looks like when uh, Marilyn Monroe had the uh, the wind going up her skirt? <laughs> he's got that effect on a pair of boxer shorts. She's walking over a drain. And then uh, a... Cloak, mm. which needs to be brought back. All you fashion icons out there. Those cloaks and uh, and a pretty, pretty fancy hat. And mm. a, and that sword is no good for anything really. Do you know what else we forgot? What did we forget? Ding ding. 
Ah, I didn't bring the scandal bell. Let's see if I've got anything I can make a noise with in here. <laughs> I uh, mean, you've got a lot of metal objects in this I shed. I have. But you probably need to be careful which ones you strike. <laughs> I'm, look, I'm, look, I'm eyeing up that mallet. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, I've got a cup here. Oh, love it. Okay. Nice. Brilliant. So, James VI is king, but he's only 13 months old. Yeah. And he's got the awkward position that his mother is still alive. What is the relationship there? I mean, I, I understand mother and son, but <laughs> yeah. they haven't seen each other for... Well, so she sees him not that long before he becomes king, I suppose. Right. But obviously he's rather young and won't have any memory of this particularly. Because he's 30 months old. He's only 30 months old. Um, But a lot of Scottish nobles think that things have gone too far with Mary being overthrown. So actually a lot of people fight to have her restored as queen. And uh, initially she actually escapes from her prison, Mm. rounds up a huge army and is uh, preparing to take back control. Mm. But unfortunately for her, she is unsuccessful. James has been crowned by this point while she was in prison. It's actually the worst attended uh, coronation in Scottish history. Only five earls were present and no foreign ambassadors. I'm telling you, it was the biggest (laughs) crowd this nation has ever seen. (laughs) Apologies, apologies. Now, the first regent for James is a chap called the Earl of Murray. Now, he was an illegitimate son of James V, so he's actually a half-brother of Mary. Um, Now, Mary, as I said, escaped in 1568, but Murray defeats her army at the Battle of Langside, and after this, she flees to England, hoping that Elizabeth I will provide her with some assistance. Yeah. Unfortunately for Mary, it's all a bit awkward for Elizabeth, and instead, Mary finds herself under house arrest. Yes, because of the man who hates her. William Cecil. Thank you. So, the civil wars continue in Mary's absence. So even though she's not in Scotland anymore, we've still got the Marian party fighting against the King's party. Right. Uh, The Earl of Murray is probably the most powerful figure at this point, but in 1570 he is assassinated when he is shot through the stomach. Oh, goodness, that's got to be the worst, isn't it? Well, and indeed, he is in fact the first recorded assassination by firearm in history. Rex, fact, what year is this? 1570. So at least that was something for him to <laughs> think about as he, as he writhed around in... This has never happened before. Mortal agony. Oh, dear. Ooh. So um, he was a controversial figure, but he was the most powerful, so he leaves a bit of a vacuum. The next chap that is put in to be regent is backed by Elizabeth I, and it's the Earl of Lennox, who is the father of Lord Darnley, mm. so James's paternal grandfather. That seems a pretty safe pair of hands. Indeed. And he does restore a little bit of unity, but in 1571 uh, there's a raid at Stirling Castle and he is fatally wounded while seeing it off. Mm, well. Dragged back into the castle at Stirling where little James sees his bloodied grandfather's body. Oh, gosh, it's a rough time, isn't it? So the next chap, number three, Earl of Mar. We, we haven't met him. Have no, and he dies at dinner in 1572. Of lampreys? Well, apparently he just dies, but there are some rumours that he might have been poisoned. Of course. And when are they going to stop this, by the way? Well, (laughs) I mean, actually, I'll just listen to the next series to find out. The next chap is the Earl of Morton. Um, But he is more successful than his predecessors. He oversees the final defeat of the Marian faction with the capture of Edinburgh Castle in 1573. And he, after that, works pretty hard to restore trade, law and order, royal authority. So at this point, Mary's cause is pretty much done in Scotland. Um, how many years are we talking about now? Has that been? So that's, well, six years since she was overthrown, okay. five years since she escaped. Right. Now, James, of course, has not really been an active player in all of this because he's just been a child. 
And it's been a bit of a difficult upbringing for poor little James, really. Yeah. I think his father was murdered when he was eight months old. Mm. He was separated from his mother at ten months. Starved of affection as a child. He doesn't oh. really have any relatives around. Oh. Briefly his grandfather until he gets oh, God. pretty much murdered. And he's just a pawn of these rival nobles in this civil war. Mm. No one's really actually looking out for him particularly. So he never sees his mother again? Never sees his mother again after ten months. That is horrific. Mm. But he also has some difficulties in walking, apparently, James. He blamed the bad milk of his drunken nurse Yeah. for this. Um, the French ambassador who visited him in 1584... Said nonsense, it's good for <laughs> you. <laughs> uh, when he saw James when, he's, when he was 18, said, He never stops in one place, taking a singular pleasure in walking, but his gait is bad, composed of erratic steps, and he tramps about even in his room guy he's cutting quite a sad figure now he has an incredibly intensive educational regime Mm. um he learns lots and lots of languages which he excels at latin greek french italian spanish english obviously um also logic rhetoric composition arithmetic cosmology oh and this is all like in a day that he's sort of going through all of these things that's his uh, school timetable and indeed it was so intensive that he actually said that they gar me speak latin or i could speak scots I was speaking uh, Latin before. Okay. I was going to say you should concentrate on, <laughs> on, the, on, on the basics here because I did not get that at all. Apparently his party piece was that he could extempore read a chapter of the Bible out of Latin and into French, then out of French and into English. His education is provided by a chap called George Buchanan, who is a renowned scholar. So he provides the rig- rigorous education and the love of learning and also provide some useful lessons for James. So apparently James, as a young man, had a tendency to sign everything that was put in front of him. <laughs> so on one occasion, Buchanan signed a, got him to sign a document which made Buchanan king for two weeks. So yeah. when James asked him why he heard reports of Buchanan going around calling himself king, he showed him the paperwork and said, well, you signed it. Brilliant. I mean, off with his head, <laughs> yeah. but brilliant. But also, Buchanan is trying to indoctrinate James. He wants him to be the ideal Protestant king but also the ideal Protestant king for the Kirk. And this believes that the supreme authority lies with the General Assembly, which is the grouping Mm. of the Protestant Mm. leaders, not kings. And indeed, kings can be resisted by the common wheel. James, however, develops independent thought. Oh, what? How dare he? He believes in the divine right of kings. And in fact, he really goes completely the opposite extreme to Buchanan. Do you think... Is that a result of that education, or is it just in the blood? Well, I suppose maybe he was actually divined by God, and yeah. therefore James was like, no, then I'm pretty sure that pretty uh, sure I've had a message I'm here. the one that's in charge. So when yeah. Buchanan is trying to teach him some lessons, one is of uh, one of his predecessors, James III, mm. who um, suffered a rebellion at Louder Bridge, where the nobles um, arrested him because they weren't happy with how he was governing. And there was a chap, Archibald Douglas, who was nicknamed Archibald's Bell the Cat Douglas. Because when they were nobles were deciding who was going to act, Douglas says, I will bell the cat, i.e. the mouse that will then go and just test out. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, find out where the cat is. Yeah, and get it going. So when Buchanan, later in the day, and the the lesson for James is that the nobles and the people have a right to resist the monarch. Mm. James sees the lesson rather differently. So later that day, Buchanan threatened to whip his breech. When James was misbehaving, to which James replied, "We would gladly see who would bell the cat." Oh, I James has identified himself with James the Third as the cat. Yeah, I I'm the monarch. I'm the supreme power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. 
Good. Oh, this is good. A bit feisty. Like it. Unfortunately, Buchanan did give James a beat. <laughs> and uh, when the Countess of Mar asked how he dared put his hand on the Lord's anointed, yeah. i.e. his bottom, yeah. Buchanan replied, Madam, I have whipped his ass. You may kiss it if you please. <laughs> I like this guy. He sounds quite a lot like my teachers at school. <laughs> But it's pretty horrible, for again, for young mm. James, because apparently even in old age, James trembled at the sight of a man approaching him who resembled Buchanan. Oh, I don't like him. Now, this is his upbringing, mm. but at some point he's actually going to have to rule. Yeah. So, the Earl of Morton has been quite a successful regent, but he makes enemies along the way. Now, in 1578, when James was 12, Morton's enemies persuaded James to declare his minority ended. That's a bit young, though. It's a bit young, and in reality, it's just uh, an excuse to try and get rid of Morton. Right. So Morton resigns as regent, but is then able to maintain his dominance of government. Right. So technically, James is in control, but really... Well, that's quite a good compromise. Mm, But it's still a delicate balance of power. Mm. Now then, into the mix, the next year, in 1579, comes a cousin of James's, Esme Stewart. Mm. Now, he is descended from the... Esme Stewart is a chap in his thirties. Okay. He's been in France. He's descended from the Lennox family, mm. and he's trying to get the earldom. Mm. But he's actually grown up in France. He's very cultured, very handsome, sort of proper, sophisticated sort of chap. A bit like us. He comes to court, and James is immediately besotted with him. Okay. Incredible influence. Suddenly, he's got a family member, somebody showing him affection, full of culture oh, yeah. and all this sort of stuff. He's never had this before. Oh, that's nice. Now, Esme becomes something of a figurehead to the opposition to Morton. Um, And so, in 1581, Morton himself is executed. For what? Well, he's put on trial for treason and for being involved in the murder of James's father, Lord Darnley. Is that, I mean, that that sounds not true. Well, he probably was. Oh, okay. Quite a few of the nobles are actually in on it. Basically, everybody apart from Mary had been in on it, and she was the one that ended up taking the fall. (laughs) (laughs) Poor old Mary. (laughs) Um, and he's killed by a thing called the Maiden, which is a prototype guillotine. Oh, Rex Fack. Which allegedly Morton himself had introduced to Scotland, though that's disputed. So, Morton has fallen. Yes. And Esme Stewart is now pretty much dominant. He's become the Earl of Lennox. In fact, he becomes the Duke of Lennox. But Protestants at court are not too happy about this, because they think, here's this Frenchie, Catholic, well, come over, yeah. yep, yep, influencing yep. things. Where's this all going to lead? They're worried he's going to convert James to Catholicism and mm. maybe try and get Mary, Queen of Scots, back in town. Okay. So in 1582, the Earl of Ruthven, who is a hardcore Protestant, leads a conspiracy against Esme. He seizes James while he's on a northern tour. How old is James here? He's 1516 okay, at this point. Right, yep. um, and holds him virtual prisoner in Ruthven Castle. Esme Stewart is prevented from uh, getting to James and uh, ultimately flees home when James is told that Esme's been doing secret correspondence with the fr- French. Not not true, though, presumably? Well, maybe a bit true, maybe not true. He protests it, but uh, James accuses him of inconstancy and disloyalty, and so Esme goes home. Oh, that's a real shame, actually, I thought. And he then dies the following year in France, Esme. Oh. Still a relatively young man. He refused the last rites, apparently. Um, I he was saying he had become a Protestant. Oh, right. And James blames Ruthven and the other lords for hastening Esme's death. Good. Anyway, 
James is thus pretty fed up with this situation and he wants out. So in 1583, he makes contact with Ruthven's enemies, persuades the custodian of the castle to, to facilitate his escape. James escapes, Ruthven is executed, and now the majority has begun. Um, is there any story associated with the escape? Is it mm, just not, not particularly exciting one? Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> just right. open the door and let me walk out without stopping me, please. Yes, I'm the Fair king, enough. king of King of Scotland, eighteen, and um, yeah, let's go. Yeah. I wish people would do that more when they say they're in prison. Yeah. <laughs> just absolutely assert your authority. <laughs> do you know who I am? <laughs> yeah. Yes, and that's why you're here. <laughs> so James is eighteen, and he's trying to uh, take back control of royal authority because he's got uh, the Kirk in opposition to him. He's got a lot of Protestant lords that aren't particularly fond of him. Mm. He's also got some Catholic lords that are trying to get their own way. So it's mm. quite a dodgy scenario. Mm. In 1584, he uh, has introduced the Black Act, as they're known, which is where he asserts the royal authority over the church. So he's named head of the Kirk and is given the right to appoint bishops, which previously were not allowed within the Presbyterian system. Okay. So he's, at, he's rebelling against all of his upbringing now. Mm. And he's also able to summon the General Assembly. Mm. So he's now trying to be the one that's actually in charge of the church rather than it dictating yeah, good. to him. There's also another Earl of Bothwell. Right. This is the nephew of the one that married Mary. And not related because he's not... But not related to James. To James yeah. Yeah. Um, in 1589, he was found guilty of treason for plotting to seize Holyrood House, but this sentence was deferred. But then in 1591, he's accused of paying witches to murder James. <laughs> and over the next three years, he pops up at intermittent uh, periods, besieging James in various palaces before running off and escaping again. He becomes sponsored by the Kirk as a Protestant champion. And James is kind of always in fear for his safety because he's always worrying that someone is going to try and either because... assassinate him or kidnap him. And there's just this weird eccentric on the loose who's <laughs> followed by a band of witches and... Protestants and Presbyterians. The stalker. It's, it's yeah. bizarre. In 1593, James was getting dressed in Holyrood House when he found Bothwell um, outside kneeling with his sword, effectively showing that he'd taken control. James ran off crying treason, found that the door he tried to get into was locked. The nobles come in to find out what all the fuss is about. James calms down and they have a bit of a compromise. So Bothwell will go on trial, be acquitted, be pardoned, and then he'll leave court and stop bothering James so much. Hmm... Is this a whole uh, wasps with jam issue? Well, he, he does try another rebellion, but James is successful in putting this down, and Bothwell does then go into permanent exile. Okay. And the Kirk was still dominant, but in 1597, um, there was a riot in Edinburgh after rumours of a papist plot. Now, James makes quite a clever move. He just leaves Edinburgh completely and goes to Linlithgow and just leaves everybody to it. It's a good move. Just... Fight it out amongst yourselves. Yeah, it's total chaos. All of the more moderate people are like, oof, I don't like this. The Kirk is causing all sorts of problems here. So when James comes back a few months later, restores order, everybody's delighted to see him. Yeah, good idea. He's back dominant. And um, in 1600, the last real rebellion against him, or the last real sort of kidnapping assassination attempt is defeated when the Earl of Gowrie um, tried to kidnap or kill James when they invited him round to his house. <laughs> James was able to get to a window, alert his uh, nobles who were in situ. Gowrie and his brother are killed, and James can feel relatively secure. <sighs> okay, all right, so now we can get on with doing all sorts of excellent scandal. Well, in the middle of all of this, James gets married. Right. 
So this is in uh, 1590, 1591. He decided to marry a woman called Anne of Denmark. Uh, why Denmark? Protestant, which is good for England and the yeah. succession there. Um, they've already got pretty good trade links. Though, he can't be marrying all these Catholic people because that will oh, upset true. the English. So. And there's no one in England that's an obvious candidate. Well, he wants... So this is the uh, sister of the King of Denmark, so he needs oh, to be good. someone of a pretty high okay, status yeah, yeah. for it to be. Now, Anne was going to come to Scotland from Copenhagen in September of 1590, but terrible storms forced the uh, fleet to return and shelter in Norway. Mm. They weren't able to get across. Now, she was going to go home, but James seems to have convinced himself that he was passionately in love with Anne of Denmark mm. and fancies himself a romantic hero. Mm-hmm. So he resolves to go and get her himself. Jumps in a pedalo and sets off. Well, he takes a sea. retinue of 300, promises to return within 20 days, which is a bit ridiculous, and he goes off to Oslo. Wow. So Anne was about to go home, and then James suddenly arrived as a, a tall, slim gentleman with lean cheeks. Yes, I mean, that's, yeah, he is. It's the man on the card. Yeah. She recoiled when he went to kiss her after the Scots fashion. Oh, uh, I told you they've got links with the French. <laughs> uh, but was told that this was merely Scottish custom and he wasn't being overly familiar. Right. So they get married in Oslo because James Society is not going to inflict a winter crossing on Anne. And they have to after that kiss, presumably. Well, indeed. Um, the sermon is preached in French so that Anne could understand because she didn't speak Scots or English or oh, right. any other thing. That's a nice little thing. And instead of heading back because it's winter, he basically just has a nice little honeymoon in Scandinavia. Oh, nice. In winter? Yeah. Oh, gosh. It's kind of romantic. They uh, go to stay with her family, so they cross um, sort of the river, the ice in horse-drawn sleighs. Um, and he just has a nice time sightseeing, <laughs> hunting, has a few chats with some philosophers. Yeah, Oh. He also gained a taste for drink while he was away. Oh, right. Because apparently the Danes had something of an international reputation for uh, drinking at this point. And Sir James Melville noted that he made good cheer and drank stoutly till springtime. It sounds great. I mean, this this is the start of that um, bloodline, isn't it? Yeah. I can see he's... Uh... He's starting to be a bit of a merry monarch here. So after a few months uh, just drinking in Denmark, he comes back home. So, James is married, Yeah, he's producing children, and he has ultimately managed to see off all of these various crazy nobles and religious mm. fellows. Yeah. But his prime goal, like his mother, is to succeed Elizabeth I in England. The reason that he is next in line, well... Elizabeth is the last of the Tudors. Mm. So after Elizabeth, no more Tudors, so it's got to be somebody else. So the next most senior line would be Henry VIII's older sister, Margaret. And by that line, we get Mary, Queen of Scots, and James VI. Yeah. So he's got a pretty good claim, other than the fact that his mother is he's still <laughs> <Yeah>. alive. <laughs> so after a lot of negotiating in the 1580s, in 1586, we have an Anglo-Scottish treaty of uh, Berwick, where... James is provided with an annual pension mm. and Elizabeth makes a private promise not to prejudice his claim to the throne. So it's not a promise, but it's not it, saying he can't be. It's a bit of a nod and a wink, yeah. but it's not quite explicit. The next year, 1587, after nearly 20 years in England, Mary is found guilty of treason against Elizabeth. 20 years! Which puts James in a slightly awkward position because as a Scot mm. and indeed a son, mm. you might expect him to object to his mother having her head cut off. Yeah. On the other hand, 
He also wants to be King of England, so he doesn't want to make too much of a fuss, or Elizabeth might prejudice his claim to the throne. And has never met her. So, what he does is kind of make a public show of opposition, but privately indicate that he'd probably get over it. Oh, gosh. What? It's like Sophie's Choice. (laughs) This is terrible. As such, 1587, Mary Queen of Scots is executed. So who is he talking to here? Cecil, really? Cecil, Dudley, Elizabeth's chief ministers. Yeah. He does write to Elizabeth as well. So he's not yet, however, got an explicit acknowledgement that he is the heir to the throne. No, but who else is there? Well, we've got Arbella Stuart, who is also descended from Margaret Tudor. But is a woman. Is a woman, but born and bred in England, which James is not. Mm. Early 1600s, James starts to begin some secret talks with Elizabeth's leading ministers. Mm. Now, the first one is a little bit of a a risky chap, the Earl of Essex. Oh, hello, where we are? But when he is executed for attempting a coup against Elizabeth... I won't hear anything said against him. He then turns to Robert Cecil, Mm. son of William Cecil and Elizabeth's chief minister. Equally sneaky. Equally sneaky, but rather more effective than Essex, and really the key allies. Robert Cecil is really the the prime minister, in effect. He's the man that really will make things happen. Right. And of course, when there's that intervening period where Elizabeth is dead and there is no one in charge, really Cecil's word mm, okay. is going to count for quite yeah. a lot. So in March 1603, Elizabeth I died, even on her deathbed, not naming a successor. Was there a grey area there? On her deathbed? Well, there was a a suggestion that Robert Cecil suggested to her the King of Scots, and she made some sort of (laughs) noise or gesture, but... That sounds so dubious. Look, do you see that? She twitched. She twitched. (laughs) Mm. But she's dead. Someone else is going to make the call, and that person is Robert Cecil. Within eight hours, James is proclaimed as king. And after a furious three-day ride, James himself learns that he has been proclaimed the King of England. And uh, James is then able to make a rather leisurely progress down south to England to great acclaim. People are really pleased to see him. They're pleased, basically, there isn't a civil war. Yeah. This is an amazing moment. The King of Scots has just become the King of England. His priorities are to secure peace with Spain, because England's been at war with them for 20-odd years, a religious settlement with the Puritans, Mm. and to achieve full union between England and Scotland. Yeah, because then they're separate countries, they just share a boss. So we've got union of the crowns, but he wants to actually unite them as one state and kingdom. Peace, he ends the 20-year war with Spain, though this isn't very popular in England. Because he has to accept terms, or...? They just hate the Spanish. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, And he also takes strong action to pacify the Anglo-Scottish border, which has previously always been very violent and lots of raids, but now it's part of one kingdom. Mm. James is able to sort that out. For religion, he holds a conference at Hampton Court, um, because Puritans are demanding that we have further reform to the Church of England. They Mm. want it maybe to be a bit more like the Kirk in Scotland, Mm. much more austere, getting rid of some of the popish elements. Mm. Uh, James, however, presides over the conference and largely just continues the middle way that Elizabeth had gone along with. Yep. Um, and then, of course, we have the Union. He wants to create Great Britain, mm. England and Scotland. So he declares himself the King of Great Britain. He puts various images and seals and flags and whatnot in place, but ultimately neither the English nor the Scottish parliaments are willing to accept merger into one kingdom. 
So he's you know, had some pretty decent achievements, but he does also have some struggles. In 1605, um, a Catholic plot to uh, wipe out the entire court almost succeeded. The gunpowder plot uh-huh. was going to blow up Westminster with everybody inside. Um, it does fail, but nevertheless, it shows that he's still got religious issues to deal with in England. Um, he loses quite a lot of popularity as the reign goes on. He has a lot of disputes with Parliament because the English Parliament's got a lot more power than the Scottish one. Right. And he believes in the divine right of kings and doesn't understand why they keep objecting to everything. (laughs) And we have Scotland to deal with. Because he is still king of Scotland. Oh, I see, like admin. Scottish admin. James does return, but only once. Oh, right. He goes back 1617 to enforce some religious reform on the Scottish Kirk. Which he does get through, but they don't like it very much. I... the Scots are always... I mean, surely, as soon as you leave them alone and <laughs> yeah, disappear yeah, off to France or something, them. they go and start killing each other. Well, we'll see, the subjectivity, how well okay. Scotland fares without uh, James in place. However, age catches up with James. Increasingly suffers from ill health. He's got gout, arthritis, kidney stones, mm. all sorts of bits and bob. Um, he falls seriously ill with malaria in 1625. In England? In England. Um, he ignored the advice of um, his doctors, and um, when he made something of a recovery, he started tormenting them, going, huh, you said I had to do this, and I had to do that, and I couldn't do this. Look at me now! <laughs> yeah, but presumably they're telling him, what you must do is rub a tulip on your <laughs> nose and then eat a leech. <laughs> he feels a bit less smug when he suddenly deteriorates, <laughs> suffers a stroke, I'm not laughing at him. <laughs> and died during a violent attack of dysentery on the 27th of March, in filth and misery, at the age of 58. Oh, gosh. What a way to go. Not the most noble of endings. No. For James. No, no, no. Well, That, we however, is the life and reign of James the Sixth and then James I of yes. England. All right, well, let's see how he got on. Battleiness. Now, James didn't do terribly well for Battleiness as King of England. And I can't say that I've got an awful lot of battles, even as King of Scots, to really show oh, yeah. for James. The only thing I can really put forward isn't, strictly speaking, battliness, but he does become King of England. And thus, he acquires quite a big bit of territory that his predecessors did not. Yeah. I can see where you're coming from, but I think we'd normally Rex factor that bit. Well, maybe it's more relevant there, but nevertheless, yeah, we'll give we him go. this little go. Yeah. Um, he, it's not easy for him. His claim is based through his mother, who is A, initially, still alive, yeah. and then B, executed for treason. By the country that he's trying to take over, yeah. Technically, he's an alien, so Scots can't inherit anything on English soil, technically. So to actually inherit the soil... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. Um, Now, the 1586 Treaty of Berwick, the first draft said absolutely nothing on the succession at all. It was just a peace uh, treaty. So James proposed that Elizabeth would add in that she should in no way directly or indirectly prejudice his title or at any time give declaration of any other. He wants something concretely vague. Yes. Elizabeth didn't find it convenient to do this, but she does personally write that nothing shall be done to the prejudice of any title he may pretend unto this crown, unless by the said king's unkind usage towards her majesty, i.e. as long as you don't 
kick off a fuss and do anything against me. We won't stand in your way. Um, now, this uh, that last thing about unless by the said king's unkind usage towards her majesty was mm. probably pretty uh, pretty well timed because obviously the next year Elizabeth has his mother executed, which could well have provoked James into doing some kind of um, unkind usage. <laughs> she is a smart potato, that one, isn't she? But James plays a pretty canny game. Um, privately, he's indicating he's on board. Publicly, mm. he makes a bit of a fuss. Elizabeth is very feels very guilty when Mary is killed because mm. she although she did give the acceptance of the order she claimed that she yeah wanted, want. hadn't said actually now do it. Um but he fails when he tries to get an English dukedom and indeed explicit recognition. An English dukedom? He couldn't even get that. But he thought maybe if I've actually got a dukedom, some territory, I'm established yeah, as that an English seems... lord, that's a good stepping stone. Yeah, that seems quite a reasonable request. Was it just Elizabeth? Just no. No. Right. Okay. <laughs> so as we say, he then opens risky talks with the Earl of Essex. And indeed, after the coup that failed for Essex when he tried to yeah. do whatever he was doing, he actually had a letter from James on him when he was arrested. Ooh. So it's a bit of an awkward one to Oh gosh, yeah. To deal with. Saying best of luck, tell you <laughs> yeah. see you in Windsor. But as he said, he was more successful with Cecil. And uh, Cecil advised James to employ clear and temperate courses. Elizabeth, as she was adverse to overly much curiosity in her own actions. I can't understand that. I, she doesn't like people trying to force her into a corner and right. okay. do something. So you're saying, be nice, don't rock the boat, don't expect her to give you too much, mm. and then she'll be happy, and that's probably the best way to approach it. Uh, that's true of, of life, most people. Most people do. So as he said, although Elizabeth never formally acknowledged him, he was acclaimed as king within hours, succeeded without any opposition. Mm. And this is perhaps the point which, as you say, may be more of a Rex Factory Mm. thing. But nevertheless, after centuries of warfare, centuries of England trying to conquer Scotland, James, the King of Scots, is now the King of England. Oh, it happened that way round. That's true. And he is crowned in England, King of England, on the Stone of Schoon, which is the first, of course, the Scottish ancient yeah. stone the first time a scottish king was on that since john Balliol in 1292 because of my man because of edward the yeah. first taking it to england um that is pretty big isn't it that's quite a big achievement and you know if all your robert the bruces and your battle of bannockburns and all this sort of stuff when they're comparing notes at the end <laughs> yeah. james can go well you know yeah. okay you know i didn't fight any battles and can't hold a sword and i just sort of walk around funnily but uh kind of the king of england so. and i can say it in about 13 languages so <laughs> yeah, yeah. obviously no the argument against him yeah. yeah no battles whatsoever really for james mm. um apparently he's got a bit of a cowardly nature he was said to have been so terrified of violence that he wore thickly padded clothes for fear of being assassinated he's got and with great reason yes yeah. understandable but if we compare him to some of his predecessors he's not no. the most martial of kings <laughs> As you said, in England, he's actually effectively attacked by Parliament for refusing to go to war with Spain in the Thirty Years' War. Yeah, and then he's just sitting there with his bodyguards around him, and the very ground beneath him is set to explode. (laughs) And it's actually Spain go to war against James's son-in-law, the elector of uh, the Palatine. So it's not just, Mm. you know, a random faraway country of which we know nothing. It's Indeed, apparently 40,000 Scottish mercenary soldiers go off to fight in this war. Quite for the Protestant cause, but yeah. James as king, he's not getting involved. Have we got anything 
not just. No, I mean, there were rebellions that are put down and all that sort of thing. But in terms of James and battliness, he's it's not his bag. He likes hunting, but it's got to be against humans, really, hasn't it? This category. Yeah, I think so. Um, well, I can't. I can't see how I can give him anything more than zero. I'm afraid, despite having made that argument, I have to agree. James the Sixth is not a military man. It's a zero. Although, <laughs> I'm not going to change my score. <laughs> he might make it back in subjectivity. Hmm. Scandal. Well, he might make it up in scandal. Oh, hmm. my favourite. I'm readying the... Oh, no, the cup's gone. Oh, the cup. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, you've got one. You've got... Oh, yeah, there we go. Well, he does actually have quite a few things here for Scandal. Mm. Now, one of them, which might seem a bit unfair, but equally, a lot of people might pick up on this, it feels a little bit off-colour that he's quite so ready to acquiesce in the execution of his own mother. Yeah, and I've been trying to sort of (laughs) wheedle that out for a while, haven't I? Yeah. I mean, it is his own mother, whether he's met her or not. He must have a desire to meet her, at least before he acquiesces to her murder. <laughs> he basically chooses the throne of England over the life of his own mother. And it's is it a bit harsh to blame him for that, having never met her and this is this is the game that they play? They're all at it at this time <laughs> though, aren't they? Mary certainly was at it. Well indeed. Now in the fifteen eighties, prior to the Treaty of Berwick, immediately prior to that, Mary is writing to James proposing that they should be co rulers of Scotland and that thus she will come back. And he'll mm. still be king, but they will be effectively ruling together. Yeah. She's making this proposal to James. At the same time, Elizabeth is obviously making proposals about the Treaty of Berwick. <laughs> She's, so his mum is saying, how about you don't kill me and we rule together? And Elizabeth is saying, how about we just kill your mother? Yeah. <laughs> okay, right. And that's basically the choice he's got to make. Yeah. Yeah. So James writes back to her saying that he will always honour her as the Queen Mother. Oh, they can communicate. Oh, yeah, so they're writing to each other oh, at this right. point. Oh, okay. right, okay. So he'll always honour his Queen Mother, but he signs the Treaty of Berwick with Elizabeth. So it oh. does feel like he's picked Elizabeth over Mary. Yeah, that next letter would be awful. Now, when Mary is on trial, mm. he's in that awkward position. So what he does is a little bit cynical. He sends separate ambassadors to England. And his own words, the one to deal very earnestly, both with the Queen and her counsellors, for our sovereign mother's life. The other, that are titled to that crown, should not be prejudged. So he's sending separate mm. people, some of them to make the public argument that Mary must not be killed, the other one to say, to be honest, if you do kill her, it'll be all right. Are we to assume then that he's sort of, he, is he trying to tread a line where both outcomes happen? Or is he... Um, his eggs more in the he'll be a right basket. I think he's ultimately his main concern does seem to be to make sure that he this doesn't prejudice his claim to the throne, which seems quite dark. Yeah. In his defence, he's not seen her since he was thirteen months old. He was brought up to believe that she was an evil Catholic that engineered the murder of his father, and that everyone in this is just pawns in a big. And indeed, game. he's fearful that she will probably try and, you know, manipulate things and take his throne away in in the spirit of fairness though hmm. i can see mary's point of view that actually she's still alive yes she is she was queen of scots yeah it would be fair hmm. to at least co-rule yeah i'm gonna give him a ding <laughs> i'll give him a bigger ding <laughs> oh god that's hopeless i need the bell back <laughs> 
Now, you may remember with all the slightly chaotic goings on in Scotland when um, towards 1603 there were all these nobles doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah. The last one I mentioned was in 1600 and the Earl of Gowrie. Yeah. Now, what happens is that James was hunting near Falkland Palace when Gowrie's brother claimed that the Earl had found some treasure in his house and would James like to have a look? Oh, right. So James agreed to go with him. He was lured upstairs only to find the doors were locked behind him and daggers drawn. James struggles with the Earl's brother, gets to the window, calls for help. The men rush in and the Gowrie brothers are killed. That He's so gullible. Well, a lot of people think... It's a bit odd if you're going to try and kidnap or indeed murder the king to publicly invite him to your own house because that's Mm. definitely going to come back on you. Very true. It's also a bit odd, given how paranoid and fearful James is, that he goes. Yeah. And observers also note that the reports coming from the king should differ regarding the names of who was doing what to who and when. James owes quite a lot of money to the Gowrie brothers. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. And indeed, they are of the same fa- of the Ruthven family right. that had rebelled against him yeah. earlier uh, in 1582. So some people think that perhaps this is all a big fat porky pie and James mm. just wanted to kill them and not give them money. So James goes up into the attic, murders mm. them both, leans out the window and goes, Oh dear, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Come and give me a hand. Or realistically, he just went into the house and said... Oh, can you kill them, please? And then I'll run <laughs> yeah, out the window. Yeah. King of Scots, dead. And in, to be fair to him, he does say, if I would have taken their lives, I had causes enough. I needed not to hazard myself so. Yeah, but it does away with the admin, doesn't it? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'll give him a, one of those. One of the things that you said you knew about James, or thought you knew about him, that he was possibly gay. Yeah. This, I think... Is probably true. Right. We've got a few men. Okay. First up is Esme Stewart. His relation? His sort of, well, it's not a first cousin, it's, you know. Okay. I mean, given that his parents were first cousins. It's, it's definitely far, allowed. Far, <laughs> yeah. far less bothersome than that. Uh, a chap Sir Henry Wadrington said, Persuaded and led by him, for he can hardly suffer him out of his presence, and is in such love with him, as in the open sight of the people, oftentimes he will clasp him about the neck with his arms and kiss him. Oh, but he's had such a troubled childhood. He's probably really deeply confused at anyone that shows him any mm. affection. As I said, it's not clear if they actually have a physical relationship or if James is just kind of in awe yeah. of this sophisticated figure. Yeah, yeah. And indeed, it's not really consistent with his later relationships, where it tends to be more that James is this slightly paternal figure. Oh, right. Taking a liking to sort of handsome young yeah. men, as David Starkey said, sort of handsome and firm buttocked young <laughs> Scotsman. Right. Yeah, that's true. It does seem like a, an infatuation mm. rather than... Yeah, yeah. Whereas later, he has plenty of favourites who are young, handsome, they rise up in his favour, gets a bit bored of them, and finds another young, handsome man... That With he can firm buttocks. Up. With firm buttocks. Yay! To pick out a couple of them, Robert okay. Carr, mm-hmm. um, a handsome young Scot who went down to England when James became king. James made him... Ab- Sorry, I thought that was a euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> He's been down to England. Uh, James made him a gentleman of the bedchamber, which sounds like another Such euphemism. Such a thing happened? Yeah. And uh, personally oversees Robert Carr's rather limited previous education. Um, he rises to become James's secretary and later is made the Earl of Somerset. Hmm. 
Now, Robert Carr, after he's not exactly fallen from favour, but is no longer James's favourite, had an affair with a woman called Frances Howard. Mm. Um, she is married, so she demanded uh, a divorce from her husband, Overbury. Mm. Overbury refused, and then refuses James's order to go off and be diplomat to the Bahamas or whatever, <laughs> get him out of town. Yeah. So as a result, he is imprisoned for refusing the order, and he then dies in the Tower of London. Oh. This is all fine, because it means that Francis Howard and Robert Carr can get married, until it's later revealed that Francis had him poisoned. Right. Now, both okay. Francis and Robert Carr are sentenced to death, but James has their sentences commuted to imprisonment. And it's thought widely that James has to do this because he's fearful that if he doesn't do something for Robert Carr, that Robert Carr will speak up when he gets his moment in public and incriminate James, if not in the murder of Overbury, then perhaps in what they've been getting up to together. It's pretty... It's, I mean... Well, mm. let's meet George Villiers. <laughs> OK, let's. <laughs> he comes to the court as a handsome 21-year-old, quickly surpasses Carr and becomes James' greatest favourite. By 1623, he's become the Duke of Buckingham. That's pretty, yeah, something's yeah. up there. Um, one time when Buckingham was ill, apparently James spent three hours by his bedside and sent him regular gifts, uh, including the eyes, the tongue and the dowsets of the deer that he had killed. What a lucky boy. Dowsets being testicles. Oh, I didn't know that. Right. Okay, so instead of grapes, he got all the oval objects of a living creature, <laughs> yes. put them in a bunch and sent them to him in a gruesome little package. Yeah. Oh, love. Um, one place to say that, Ablethorpe Palace, in 2004 to 2008, restoration of uh, the house revealed a previously unknown passage linking the bedchambers of James and Buckingham. Re that's brilliant. What year was that? 2008? Yeah. How did they not find a like, Great Escape style passage? It must have been well, brilliant. And James, uh, at one point to Parliament, makes a speech where he said, You may be sure that I love the Earl of Buckingham more than anyone else, and more than you who are here assembled. I wish to speak in my own behalf, and not to have it thought a defect, for Jesus Christ did the same, and therefore I cannot be a defect, for Jesus had his John, and I have my George. Oh, that's lovely. So actually, he might not have cared if, if the other fellow had come out, as it were, and said... <laughs> you know we were lovers if it's sort of public he's almost setting it there he's very it? affectionate in public like he showers them with gifts and yeah. cuddles and kisses and all sorts yeah. of things but it's just it's it's just not that final step of saying this is actually happening yeah <laughs> now interestingly with Buckingham an extra bit of scandal which isn't really mm. James's scandal but um, he was at James's bedside throughout when James was dying and he applies various poultices and a julep to James against the knowledge of the royal physicians. Right. After he dies, the doctors refuse to sign a bill prepared by Buckingham affirming that the treatment he'd given James was safe. Huh. And when Buckingham tries to have them dismissed, one of them publicly accuses Buckingham of having poisoned James. Ooh! Hoo, hoo, hoo. That is so... What? So his lover poisoned him? Allegedly. Oh, how much, how much stall can we put by Well, that? Parliament does actually look into it, and various other people he's then accused of murdering. He's uh, criticised... Other people? Yeah. <laughs> so we've got a serial killer on our hands. <laughs> he's criticised, but not condemned. <laughs> I'm astounded. So he's done this to others? Well, again, allegedly. Allegedly. 
Crikey. I mean, he's a very unpopular figure because he's James's favourite at a sort of end of the reign. He's associated with all sorts of unpopular policies. He's probably just a scapegoat. Well, still, though. Yeah. Mm. So we've got um, acquiescing in his own mother's execution. Big. Having some of his nobles murdered and trying to pretend that <laughs> they were attacking him. I'm pretty sure that's true, Big. And having quite a few potentially gay lovers. One of whom may have murdered him. <laughs> well, that is massive. I love that bit. I mean, we, we have to give this a scandal, don't we? Because mm. it's scandalous to the time. Yes. Uh, yeah, we're not saying now that it's a, no. a scandalous thing, but for a 17th I mean, it's century lovely. What's weird is that it, it's got all the elements for a really big score, but doesn't have one of those big scandals that echoes down the ages. No, there's no sort of terrible no. thing there. And uh, at the time, although it's massive is sort of known about and joked about. Mm. Even the death of his mother. I mean, I feel like that's probably something which we look back on now and think, well, that's a bit off, rather yeah. than something at the time that would necessarily have been. But it's, a, it, yeah, it's that whole Game of Thrones thing. Mm. This is the game we play. And yeah. But I don't think that we could not give that a big score of scandal of, no. of perhaps signing away your mother's <laughs> life. <laughs> But it's got to be over five. Mm. I think we're heading north of seven. Mm. Eight is really very punchy. 7.5 or a seven? Mm. Mm. I know, yeah, we're saying it out loud, I think a seven. Mm. Because it was scandalous at the time. I mean, it's a lot of fun, (laughs) but it is scandalous. Mm. Mm. Seven. I think a seven as well. I think that's a fair score, which gives him a 14 out of 20. Subjectivity. He's a very intellectual monarch. Mm. In fact, he's really Scotland's first and only philosopher king, Ooh. you could say. Okay. He's... Oh, he went to go and see those philosophers in uh, on his jollies. On his jollies. Um, he's he's a published author, which I think is the only one in Scottish history. Wow. He um, he outlines his own theory on the power of monarchy in uh, the True Law of Free Monarchies. And also provides a pragmatic guide to kingship for his eldest son, Prince Henry, in the Basilicon Doran. Wow. Um, he also does a little bit for public health. He publishes a counterblast to tobacco. She <laughs> writes is loathsome to the eye, hateful to the nose, harmful to the brain, dangerous to the lungs. Wow, he was ahead of his time. <laughs> he was. That's amazing. Uh, the French ambassador de Fontenay said that he is for his age the first prince who has ever been in this world. He has three parts of the soul in perfection. He grasps and understands quickly. He judges carefully and with reasonable discourses. He restrains himself well and for long. In his demands he is quick and piercing and determined in his replies. Of whatever thing they dispute, whether it be religion or anything else, he believes and maintains always what seems to him most true and just. Good. And we see this in his religious policy. He doesn't like the extremism of the Presbyterian Kirk or indeed of the Puritans in England. Hmm. The Jacobean age is following the Elizabethan age, but it's, again, you could argue, something of a golden age culturally. Mm. In England... Mm. we'll give him credit for some of this as well um, Shakespeare writes some of his best works under James we think of him purely as Elizabethan but under yeah. James we've got King Lear, The Tempest and things like this Macbeth is really written specifically for James of course as the of King course of I, that sort of stuck out for me when we were doing Macbeth mm. like, why is Shakespeare getting involved but yeah. actually yeah it's it's pleasing the monarch of the time and indeed actually um, James's uh, demonology work and witches actually probably Shakespeare actually pretty much directly quotes from that for the Weird Sisters, the witches in Macbeth. 
So Shakespeare uses James as a source. Oh, right. But, but wasn't there that fellow that was using witches to try and assassinate him? <laughs> yes. So maybe it came from that as well. Well. He said, I've had, I've had experience with these little fellows. Let me tell you something. Yeah. Um, we've also got other theatrical um, impresarios. John Webster and Ben Johnson. Poetry from John mm. Dunn. Scientific mm. Advances of Francis Bacon. Mm-hmm. Masks by Inigo Jones. And then after the Hampton Court Conference, James uh, commissioned a new definitive translation of the Bible into English. This is big. This is the King James Bible, mm. arguably the most significant work in the English language in terms of spreading English across the world. That is true. So when you say he has published, it isn't in a sort of <laughs> the kids gather together to produce a, a poetry book that only the parents will buy. <laughs> Probably the most successful book of all time. Now, obviously, James doesn't actually write it and translate it himself. Oh, Although he, he does do a bit of translating it. of Psalms, which yeah. actually makes it in. But nevertheless, he does commission this incredible mm. work. It is from James that it gets done. Yeah, yeah. It's got a, his name on it. He does literally have his name on it. He's, yeah. He's got his face inside, I believe. There's a picture of him at the top oh, really? showing him as... Oh, I've seen that. Mm. And there's, yeah, it's a great picture. And down the bottom, there's people who aren't reading it and they're all uh, confused and <laughs> yeah. off in hell and stuff, yeah. So that's quite a big cultural legacy. Mm, yeah, quite big. Um, against him, James is actually a bit indifferent to his golden age. Mm. So he slept during plays. And uh, when Francis Bacon presented him with uh, a great scientific work, James said that it passeth all understanding. <laughs> I mean, you're never really aware when you're living through a great <laughs> time, are you? I mean, imagine sort of people in the 60s weren't necessarily realising they were on the cusp of a wave <laughs> or something. But um, but James is not perhaps always the life of the party. De Fontenay again said that he dislikes dancing and music and the little affectations of court life, such as amorous discourse or curiosities of dress, and he has a special aversion for earrings. I thought he was a prototype Charles II. Right? He's an intellectual, not a party animal. He likes drinking and making rude jokes, but probably doesn't want to read a play. Huh. Surprising. Okay. Mm. Well, are you going to read us some of those poems in the Privy Council? Maybe. Okay. That'll be a treat for you later. Yeah. One of the big things for James in Scotland is achieving some kind of control over religion. Yes. And the Scottish Kirk was a direct challenge to the predominance of the monarchy. It was instrumental in the downfall of his mother, Mary Queen of Scots. It had backed the Ruthven regime in mm. 1582 which imprisoned James mm. so it's quite a seditious element as far as James is concerned so he tries to get some control over it we mentioned the black acts of 1584 which made James the head of the Kirk so he can now appoint bishops he can summon the general assembly this is all legislation to show that actually the crown is at the heart of the nation not the Kirk yeah which is incredible given his background and how quickly he established that now it doesn't meet, go without opposition. 1592, Parliament recognises Presbyterians' preferred system of government. Mm. And 1596 was when Andrew Melville called him God's silly vassal. Yeah. And he asserted to James that there is two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is Jesus Christ the king and his kingdom the Kirk, whose subject James the sixth is, and of whose kingdom not a king, nor a lord, nor a head, but a member. How did he survive with his head attached to his body? Well, at this point, the Kirk is powerful enough that James is not able to just mm-hmm. off with his head. Okay, That's what James is dealing with. He's dealing with an organisation, religious organisation, that sees itself as above the king. 
And is incredibly open in it. And is incredibly open in it. Now, as you said, James was able to exploit that anti-Catholic riot in Edinburgh mm. to sort of demonstrate that actually all of these extremists are causing lots of problems. He leaves town, comes back a few months later, mm. everyone's really pleased to see him, and mm. he's then able to take some firmer action against them. And he is able to start taking some action after this. 1605 to 06, the General Assembly uh, in Scotland met without his approval, because technically he's meant to call. Mm. meetings of the assembly when some of the ministers are put on trial they decline to appear before the privy council claiming that it wasn't competent to judge on ecclesiastical matters it's a little bit thomas beckett and henry the yeah. second really um james had six of them tried for treason and they are banished for life well still that's a compromise isn't it mm. others would have um removed the old head um, 1609 indeed the name presbytery was abolished as being odious to his majesty Ooh. And in 1611, the Court of High Commission for Province of St Andrews and Glasgow is established, which was kind of a final nail in the coffin of the Presbyterian system. It's really getting that system of bishops and dioceses and that sort of thing. So, good. Done pretty well there. Yeah. He also does some work to restore law and order in Scotland, which was, quite frankly, in, in need. <laughs> yeah. As I said, his father had been murdered, his mother was exiled, the nobles are fighting each other, we had a civil war, the Kirk is anti-monarchy, we've got almost no royal authority in the localities, the borders and the highlands are pretty much ungovernable for central government. His grandfather had it in front of him. It's all quite chaotic. The borders between England and Scotland are now refashioned as the Middle Shires. Hmm because James doesn't really want there to be a border as such, he wants it to be one country. He sets up a joint border commission in 1605 to root out the border reavers, the troublemakers. 79 are killed in the first year of this operating. Mm. And uh, hundreds are either killed or transported in the second year. Which is not perhaps, looking back, you know, something which we would celebrate in terms of how due process should take place. But by the 1620s, they're pretty much able to pare down these operations because the borders have actually now become quite stable and peaceful mm. and right. settled, which has not been the case for... Ever. Ever, yeah. Previous monarchs that we thought were powerful in, in uh, Scottish terms mm. now look like nothing when you see mm. that he's now king of the entire island. Yes. And is just, right, let's sort that out. And that's, that's the done. key thing, because previously, of course, the border reavers, the people on the raiding on either side could just side with the other people yeah. whereas now James is both, both sides yeah, yeah. so there's nowhere yeah. for them to go yeah it's big it's good mm-hmm. like it's it it's good for the Highlands in 1609 he enacts the statutes of Iona where the chiefs of all the various clans mm. have to send their sons to be educated in the lowlands so they're going to learn to read and write in English so he's trying to sort of stamp out this well, there's a law, Gaelic really? a law that they have to wow. go and do this. Okay. They also made legally responsible for the behaviour of their own people, i.e. if there's any violence and fighting going on, because you've still got a huge amount of violence and um, blood feuds and this sort of stuff. Mm. Right, so they're, they're, they seem to be like the final islands of old Scotland in the Highlands there. Yeah. Now, whether or not you see that as positive subjectivity, you could, of course, also see this as an assault on the traditional Gaelic yeah. way of life. I suppose when we're judging the monarchs, we're judging them by their ability to kind of... Impose power. Impose and, power, yeah. which is what James is trying to do here. Not hugely successfully. It's not solved by any means, but it's probably more stable again than it's been for quite a long time. But it is interesting, though, that we're now viewing this Scottish monarch in terms of uh, treaties of Hampton Court and all this kind mm. of stuff, rather than running off into the Highlands and viewing them as a basis of power. Yeah, it's it's 
turned on its head in, I don't know how many years, 20 years, 30 mm. years? Something. And the key thing for Scotland, really, here in subjectivity, is that he succeeded, really, where Mary failed in terms of going for that religious tolerance. Mm. And he achieves greater internal stability because of the borders and being king of England mm. and Scots, whatever. Scotland is at peace for, really, after the civil wars of his regency, for the entirety of his reign. Yeah. No war with England. They don't get sucked into any of the European conflict going on. There's no more civil war, which we have in a lot of the European mm. countries. The Earl of Kelly says, as he lived in peace, so did he die in peace. Yeah. it's. It, if we're to look at what this um, category is for, would you like to be a subject un- under him? Mm. Definitely. And particularly when we compare to his predecessors. I've got some little stats for mm. you here. From James I, who came to the throne in 1406, to James VI, when he reached his majority in 1583, that's seven monarchs, Mm. 177 years. Mm. 96 of those years have been spent under a regency. Gosh. That's 54% from James I to James VI becoming his majority. 54% of that time has been minorities or regency governments. My word. The average age of of accession for these monarchs is six years old. Just because they kept getting bumped off. And what that doesn't reveal is that the deaths of those regents, like with James himself, had, what was it, three or four? Apart from James V, all of James's predecessors died by violent means. Mm. And James V dies after a bad defeat to the English. Mm. Mm. In contrast, James VI dies in bed at 58 and is succeeded by his 24-year-old son. Yeah, that is, they are truly impressive statistics. I mean, truly damning statistics <laughs> to the Scots. And You know, we get, obviously James got a zero for battliness, but it's quite useful for the benefit of the nation for the monarch not to get himself killed in his 30s in a grand yeah. futile gesture. Actually, just staying alive and keeping everything going... Yeah, not I mean, bad. We said that it might come back to his benefit in subjectivity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have to review each one on its own merits and its great subjectivity. But he seemed to do all of his battliness mm. uh, by not doing it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He did by not engaging in all of the nonsense that came before mm. and just concentrating on this. He got there and he and oh, it's good. It's really solid. What I mean is I want to give him <laughs> some more points in this because of yeah, what he didn't, he didn't do, do in battliness. Yeah. Yeah. There are some points against him in subjectivity. Okay. We mentioned before demonology and witches. Yeah. Well, witches is a thing for James, and looking oh. back, it's not perhaps the most enlightened, which is surprising for an incredibly enlightened monarch. Yeah. It's a bit of a stain against his name. He just knows the word witches in 13 languages, he <laughs> said. Statutes, uh, sorry, legislation has been in place since 1563 against witches, but it's basically not been used at all. But... We recall that there were storms preventing Anne of Denmark sailing yeah, across to Scotland. Yeah. And indeed, there are storms when James come back. And the blame falls on a coven of witches in North Berwick. So, in 1591, witches are put on trial for raising storms against James and indulging in perverse rituals with the devil. Wow. One of them, Agnes Sampson, apparently took James aside and told him the very words which passed between the King's Majesty and his Queen at Oslo in Norway. Right. Presumably I do. Oh, how did you know? (laughs) So, 1590-91, to over a hundred witches were investigated, many of whom are burnt. Mm. 
Then there's a great Scottish witch hunt of 1597, about 400 put on trial and something like 200 executed. So weird. James personally supervised the interrogation and indeed torture of some of these witches. Personally? Personally. Not all of them, but some of them. No, no, but some. Mm. And indeed, although there's been some debate about how many were actually killed, nevertheless, probably more witches are burned in this period than religious martyrs are made. He's just got his own little battle. He's got mm. his own religious yeah. martyrs. Yeah, and indeed he does see it as a, an aspect of theology. So in 1597 he publishes a book, Demonology, which is a study on witchcraft, historical and contemporary. It talks about divination by demons and werewolves and vampires. God, what a waste of time. After this, he does grow a bit more sceptical. Uh, right, just just into... Oh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> he wrote to Prince Henry that most miracles nowadays prove but illusions, and ye may see how wary judges should be in trusting accusations. That Well, I mean, that's, he's, that's also weird. He's quite enlightened there that this is, you know, best part of 500 years ago, <laughs> and he's saying how they come across as illusions. Mm. Yeah, he's burning witches. It's almost like he sort of burned a few hundred witches, and then he's like, you know, on reflection... There's still storms... I'm not sure there's anything in this. Mm. Um, Scotland has got a perennial problem with money. Income from land is falling while the cost of government is increasing. Um, but James himself apparently seems to have been in- uh, weirdly incapable when it came to finance. He's good on the old philosophy, but numbers were not <laughs> his bag. He's incredibly generous to all of his firm buttocked favourites, yeah, yeah. Um, often uh, to the detriment of the precarious royal for- uh, finances. Right. And he's not really willing or able to change his ways. Oh. I'm really conflicted with him. 1590s in Scotland, he appointed uh, a group called the Octavians to sort out his finances. So sort of eight ministers who are meant to just come in and sort things out. Yeah. And it seems quite modern in a way. They suggest swinging austerity cuts, big changes to the royal household. Lots of people are laid off. But James's favourites don't really like these suggestions of not spending lots of money giving them presents. And yeah. uh, they're discredited by a sort of association with that anti-papist rebellion or plot. In Edinburgh, so it's like getting brought down. Uh, the accountants in Price Waterhouse come in and say these are where you can make some money, mm. and uh, the vested interests say no, no. Hey, I think these guys might be Catholics. Oh. <laughs> so it doesn't really work. Mm. Uh, in 1600, at the baptism of Prince Charles, who becomes Charles the uh, First, the guests were asked to provide their own provisions. To bring your own. Yes, and that's not just beer. That's like venison and wild meats and. <laughs> Food. So he's really hard up. Is this after he becomes King of England? This is before he becomes okay, King right. of England. So indeed, from 1603, James is rather more wealthy. Mm. Um, he's now able to pay. The nobles in Scotland are enriched um, to an extent that's not been seen since the days of David I. Because mm. this is him. English money going north of the border. Yes, and indeed, because James has now got his wrong household in England and is much more wealthy, Scottish revenues can actually now stay in Scotland. Now, one criticism you might level against James from a Scottish perspective is that he just abandons them. Yes. 1603, he uh, leaves Scotland and he makes a speech saying, "Not uh, Doubt not, as I have a body as able as any king in Europe, whereby I am able to travel, so I shall visit ye every three years at the least, hmm. or ofter, as I shall occasion. <laughs> in reality, he returns just once. 14 years later in 1617. And he's saying this, I have a totally able body, (laughs) as he hobbles off. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. Um, And he only comes back just to bring the Kirk to heel with sort of slightly dubious success. 
Why is that? Does he just enjoy life in England or is there too much to do? Well, he says himself that he was swapping a stone couch for a deep feather bed. Yeah. And although we do have the gunpowder plot, he's not at risk from being imprisoned by his nobles in England. Doesn't always happen, though, does it? I'm just thinking about George I, who (laughs) chose to stay in uh, Hanover a lot. But, yeah. Now, in James's defence, despite the fact that he's absent, he's not completely abandoned Scotland in terms of his thoughts. Mm. So he does ensure the governance of Scotland. So we have the Lords of the Articles who are kind of running the country. James chooses the bishops. Mm. The bishops choose the nobles, and the nobles choose the barons. The bishops choose the nobles? Not who will be a noble, but which nobles will be okay. on yep. the governing committee. Mm. So James is basically deciding who is going to rule in his mm. name. So he's got the people in place that he wants to be doing it. And 1603 to 1625 is probably about as peaceful as Scotland has been for centuries. Well, yeah, ever? <laughs> now, you might say it's a bit damning that the point at which he doesn't co isn't in the country anymore is the point at which it becomes <laughs> you know, yeah. incredibly stable and well-governed. Yeah. yeah, But equally, you can say, look, he doesn't even have to be there. Mm. So he, he died quite smugly in 1607, said, This I must say for Scotland, and may truly vaunt it. Here I sit and govern it with my pen. I write, and it is done. And by a clerk of the council I govern Scotland now, which others could not do by the sword. Very true. I mean, that's him putting to bed any battliness argument, yeah. isn't it? I mean, he, he might have written that for us. Don't need it, mate. Yeah. <laughs> pen is... Uh... Uh, you Have you written that yet, Shakespeare? No. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Did Shakespeare write that? I don't think so. I don't know, oh, I don't know actually. Mm. Interesting. Finally, against him, mm. one might argue, his big project, really, when it comes to England and Scotland, is the creation of Great Britain. Yeah. And he doesn't manage it. No. He saw himself as a sort of a second Constantine who would unify England and Scotland into a single state. There'd be one parliament, one church, one economy, one legal code. Mm -hmm. And he's at the centre of it all. He assumes the title of King of Great Britain, restyles the royal coat of arms with the lion and the unicorn, Yes. insists on a new flag, the Union Jack, Right. which is, of course, Jack being the Latin for James. Ha! Jacobus. Wow. Rex fact. He brings lots of Scots to court <laughs> in England. So apparently four out of ten uh, council at Whitehall, one-fifth of the Privy Council are Scottish, eight out of twenty of the Order of the Garter are Scottish. That seems fair. And the bedchamber is entirely Scottish at first. Mm. So, you know, we've actually got a merger of English and Scottish people yeah. at Do they court. get on? The English don't like all these freeloading Scots coming down and being given all this money as they see it. Yeah. Yeah. But nevertheless, they are there. But... The biggie is whether he can actually make it legal, mm. and he is not able to do so. Scotland fears being turned into a conquered and slavish province. So they think, I know you're Scottish, but basically this feels just like the days of Edward I, where we're just going to be effectively part of England. Yeah, it doesn't help they never came back well, <laughs> yeah. came back once to sort of stuff out. If they yeah. sort of started basing their capital in Berwick instead or something... So the English aren't very, uh, the Scots aren't very keen because mm. they are pretty suspicious about what it will mean for their position. And England don't want it either. They fear they're just going to get flooded with cheap Scottish goods and people. <laughs> um, James tried against it. He argued it was impossible for him to rule two countries at once. Mm. And he sort of says, you know, man cannot have two mistresses. It's much easier just to be married. So, Lord, they try. <laughs> Um, Hath he not made us all in one island, compassed within one sea, and of itself by nature indivisible? Yeah. Legally, though, 
he comes a cropper. The House of Commons has a look at it and says that the English and Scottish systems are very different. The mm. Scots are only really just starting to codify uh, right. their legal system. So they decided the only way it could possibly work as one nation would basically be to extend English law over Scotland. I bet they did. Which the Scots yeah. aren't going to be mm. terribly pleased about. So they've come back saying, too much admin, mate. Well, that's poor. James tries to say, you know, that we don't have to be there straight away. You know, you have to have a courtship before mm. the marriage. Yeah. I'm sure we can... Nice move the way along but ultimately he is just reduced to symbols and making minor changes such as removing prejudicial legislation against the scots but that is something that is more than there has ever been the idea of great britain does survive mm. and in 1707 it does become a reality with the act of union yeah very good very very good i'm struggling to see how this isn't a 10 um i guess you've got his his sort of struggles financially you've got some of the witchcrafty stuff you've got. Yeah, witchcraft stuff isn't good. You could also argue with his, although this is kind of, well, in England, his arguments with Parliament, but actually in Scotland, the conflict with the Presbyterian Church, you could argue that he's setting up some pretty big issues that will be enough to scupper the reign of his son, Charles I. Yeah, but it's like not blaming the son for the father's sins and vice versa. Yeah. And, um I'm just trying to see it in its purest form again. I would be happy. I'd be happy if I were English. I'd be happy if I were Scottish. Hmm. I guess another criticism that is made of James is that it takes him an awfully long time to come to grips with Scotland. And actually, we mentioned the contrast with all of his predecessors who die so young, but actually, they all pretty much... Well, I suppose you could argue apart from Mary, apart from James III, but actually, they all kind of take control young and successfully and really stamp their authority until until they come a cropper mm. we think of like james ii that comes king pretty early and then he's got a rival noble he just stabs him <laughs> and then defeats that family yeah. in war and then yeah. he's all powerful james the sixth it really takes pretty much up to 1603 and you wonder how successful a king of scots he would have been if he hadn't suddenly had the resources of england thrown in now he managed things very well to become king of england but Arguably, up to 1603, he's actually been less successful than his predecessors because he's struggled so much. And it's really that part that we have to judge him on. Mm. A... But, of course, he becomes King of England and is then able to provide the yeah. stability to Scotland. So, as far as scoring this, mm. are we doing it mostly on the Scottish stuff? Yeah, mostly on the Scottish stuff. I think he still deserves credit for things like um, the King James Bible, for example. I'd forgotten that. I, I really want to give him a massive score on this, and I've said about the battliness thing as well. I I will take it down a notch, <laughs> and I'll say nine, but I'm sticking with a nine. Mm. Yeah, I was sort of thinking around a nine. I was sort of between eight and nine, which I suppose leads me towards eight and a half. I think it's just, which I maybe haven't put across so well at all just now, but that sense of him struggling mm. with Scotland. Mm. And the counter-argument is, of course, well, he does become King of England and then he is able to make it all fine and sort it out and that's all good. But but it's the, we've got to look at that window. That window, he's a bit lucky, perhaps, that he does get to become King of England because mm. I think without that, I think he would have been okay in Scotland. I don't think he would have been overthrown or anything like that, but he definitely benefits mm. from that coming in. But there is still an awful lot of good stuff in there. There's an awful lot of good stuff. And... Uh, when you consider predecessor and how bad things had gotten under Mary, yeah, you know, really almost at the point where you're starting to think about will the monarchy itself survive as a and force. he doesn't throw his lot in one side or the other. Hmm. So 
So, yeah, it takes him a long time to come to terms with it, but maybe it was actually a tougher challenge than his predecessors had faced. And the only victim was his own mother. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give him a nine as well. Hey! That's an 18. That's massive. Subjectivity. Longevity. So he is King of Scots from the 24th of July, 1567, to the 27th of March, 1625. That's, oh, that's a terrific time. It's 57.67 <sighs> years. <sighs> yeah, that whole becoming king at 13 months is really, really mm. helpful. And not getting killed. Anyway, it's pretty good within the context of the island. Within the context of Scotland, that is the longest reign yeah. in Scottish history. So that's a 20 out of 20 for longevity. Saved it up till the end. Mm. Dynasty, not the program. He has two surviving children, which gives him a score of four out of 20. Tragically, Prince Henry, the eldest son, dies at the age of 18. Mm. And he was like the great hope for the next generation. He was quite beloved by the people. He was a Protestant champion. He was very athletic, mm. quite military-minded, mm. seen as this sort of cultural patron, real hope for the future, but died. And then, of course, it went to the sickly, not-so-impressive, not-so-capable Charles. Charles. History could have been very different had he been succeeded by Henry the Ninth instead of Charles the First. Henry the Ninth. wow. Mm. Anyway, mm. four out of 20, so that's 56 for James the Sixth. Wow. So 56 will put James in seventh place overall. Very good. That pops in between uh, William the Lion, who didn't get the Rex Factor, and David the First. Who did? Who did. Okay. So, 56, very good score. Great. Top 10 for the Scots overall. But does it mean that James VI has that certain something, that lasting legacy, that great quality, that... Oh, I've mixed them up. <laughs> does he have the... Rex Factor! He does become King of England. Mm. He does bring... A lot of stability to Scotland, arguably only because he becomes King of England, but nevertheless he does it, at mm. a time when Scotland had been so unstable oh, yeah. and the monarchy under such threat. Mm. He got some good scandal in there as well. He's this intellectual monarchy. Something different, I suppose, is another thing. He's different to the other kings of Scots. I don't think it's possible to, give, to not give someone the Rex <laughs> Factor who inherits another crown. I mean, that's... You know, in terms of things to put on the mantelpiece for a Rex Factor winner, when they're all comparing on the Rex Factor yeah. mountain their achievements, if James can come along and go, oh, here's the crown of England, and uh, oh, you know, that stone of scone you guys used to sit on, yeah, yeah I, I got that as well. Yeah. Bought and um, what's that in your pocket? Oh, it's light reading. I wrote this myself. Have you heard <laughs> King James Bible? Yeah. Okay, done that. Fine. And it was that way round as well. I know we said that was important to making it palatable to the Scots, but... All of this time in history, if you were to read back when you were living through his reign, you'd definitely assume that if the island were ever to share a king, it would be an English king taking yeah. the Scottish throne. So however he did it, it's impressive. Mm. And it was that way round. Mm -hmm. it's, it's got to be a yes from me. Now, it's interesting because he didn't get the Rex Factor as what? King of England. Really? But of course, as King of England, we wouldn't have given him any credit for all the Scottish stuff. We wouldn't have given him credit for becoming King of England, particularly. Oh, right, yeah. So Did in we England, not? Well, we'd have focused more on the parliamentary disputes and issues that he has later on in his reign, which we've not done here because it's not really that relevant yeah, yeah. to Scotland. Yeah. But 
when you see it from a different perspective, when you see it from the Scottish perspective and all mm. of the period where he's King of Scots, even though he struggles a bit in that period, actually the achievement for a King of Scots that yeah. James shows, I think, yeah. is incredibly impressive. Yeah, definitely. I think the King of Scots becoming King of England yeah. and all the challenges he faced as a 13-month-old, you mm. would not have imagined that he could have risen to such heights. Yeah. Didn't do it by the traditional means, i.e. by the sword, but that's what James has got. He had something different to his predecessors of Scotland. I think he deserves it as well. It's a yes from me. Excellent. Well done, James. Brilliant news. So James VI does have the Rex Factor. That's 13 Scottish monarchs on the Rex Factor mountain. Good luck. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. So uh, that is it for the main part of this second series of Rex Factors of Scots. We have reviewed all of the kings and queens from Kenneth McAlpin to James VI. Of course, we've not finished the series. No. Because like in our first series with the English, we now will have the playoffs. The 13 Scottish Rex Factor winners will be set off against each other and we will find out which one of them will be crowned the Scottish Rex Factor champion. I'm looking forward to the grand final. It's going to be fun. But, in the meantime, let us know what you think about James yeah. VI. Um, get in touch with us on social media, Twitter, at RexFactorPod. Like us on Facebook and join in the discussions there. Email RexFactorPodcast.hotmail.com and go to WordPress, RexFactor.wordpress.com to complete all the various polls on whether or not you think mm. each monarch deserves the Rex Factor. Yeah. If you'd like to support us, you can leave a review on iTunes. Very helpful. Subscribe. Uh, you can make a one-off donation on PayPal if you'd like to give us a little bit of a one-off treat financially. Thank you very much. Uh, Joss Waller, Jean, Rick Bjurstrom, Matthew Orr and Sally Beaton have all done so since last Thank time. Thank you very, very much. Very lovely of you. If you would like to support us on a monthly basis and join our Privy Council, <whistles> then you can click the Be My Patron link and uh, you can get various rewards. Everybody that pays us on a monthly basis gets to listen to the Privy Chamber podcasts, mm-hmm. which Ali and I record after the main episodes where we go over some of the notes and stuff that um, I didn't put into the main episode but thought would be fun to share. Have a little bit of a light-hearted gin wag. And it's just us chatting about... <laughs> you know, we're, we're just chatting. And then it, there it is. But I like it. It's fun. It's fun. relaxed. It's good. And uh, everybody gets that. If you do $5 uh, a month or more, you get free access, apart from the $5 a month, to all of our special episodes, yeah. which usually cost $2 a time. $10 a month, you get a mug. $15 a month, you get to commission a blog on the subject of your choice. Mm-hmm. And $25, you get to commission a special episode. Yes. And which we've recently done one on Bess of Hardwick. Well, recently. <laughs> the last thing we did was one on Bess of Hardwick, Elizabethan uh, matriarch. She, of course, is the one that brings up... Uh, our, our Bella Stewart, is James's potential rival for uh, for the throne, and looked after her mother, his mother, indeed, Mary Queen of Scots. So uh, quite quite a useful one mm. in terms of the context of the Scottish series. And we have some privy councillors to welcome. Hello, Sarah Conrath, Laura Pyle. Oh, Sarah Conrath. Yeah. Uh, Mira Form or Myra Form, Mira Myra, Funky Caravan, <laughs> Sword Days, mm-hmm. Susan Shewell, Jean, Meg Vansill, Hind Thirty Seven, Swanson Betsy, Trister. David White, Neither Doiza, Tristan Ingle, Michael Hallett, Father Gilgamesh, and Thomas Say. Arise, Privy Councillors. Thank you very much. Sarah Conrath has uh, been active on Facebook for ages, so it's great yeah. to see her in the um, in the chamber. Indeed. Uh, we got a message from one of our new Privy Councillors, not new in this list, but uh, Trish McFarlane. Mm. She says that uh, Rex Factor has quickly become my favourite podcast and oh. keeps me entertained on the long commute. Thank you. I've been known to laugh out loud, particularly at Ali's wonderful exclamations. 
horseradish sauce being my current favourite. <laughs> I tell you, if you get that into your lingo, it is very useful. <laughs> I still don't see why Edward I is so great. Oh, whatever. Perhaps the special episode will persuade me. Yeah. Now, Alex Thompson got in touch about James IV. Yeah. Another Rex Actor winner. What was his standout thing? Um, he was the hobby dentist. Okay. And all that sort of fun yep. stuff. Um, now, he actually has quite an important spiritual legacy that we failed to touch upon. Right. Um, Alex says that in 1494, he ordered a friar from Lindor's Abbey, which is now a whiskey distillery, to produce him aqua vitae, the Gaelic for which is usque baia. Oh. And what we now call whiskey. Oh, that sort of spirit. Got it, got it, got it. This is the first recorded reference of spirit production in Scotland, and thus James IV is the first known whiskey wow. drinker. Wow. That is, I mean, we should have included that in subjectivity. Mm, yeah. Hmm. It's another thing to add to his quirky list of uh, yeah, yeah. interesting achievements. <laughs> That's why, like, dentistry, he gave them a little nip of whiskey and said, <laughs> you'll be fine. Now, when we had Mary Queen of Scots become queen at the age of six days old, mm. you asked wh- about whether there'd been any monarchs in the womb. Did I? You did. Okay, fine. <laughs> and I'll you're going to be take your word for it. on the edge of your seat to find the answer out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bree Jensen at Bree Jensen on Twitter said there was a monarch declared in the womb, Shapur II, in 310 AD of the Sasanian Empire. Oh, right. Was in the womb. And uh, Anthony Baker and Douglas Thompson both pointed out that John of France was born after his father died. Uh, father Louis X died. And so he, again, he was in the womb and oh, then born wow. to become king. Waiting to meet the king. That's a strange idea, isn't mm. it? And finally, uh, Sarah Cunliffe. Uh-huh. Now, a number of people got in touch about this on Twitter and on Facebook, but I've just gone Sarah's one. People quibbled with our scoring for Mary Queen of Scots in relation to Scandal. I, I thought we were trying to be really fair there. Well, so this is what she said. Even though I agree with you that much of Mary's Scandal wasn't exactly her fault, it's also true that she was scandalous at the time. Yep. The marriage to Bothwell seems like it may have been coerced, but it was a huge European scandal and basically led to her forced abdication. I appreciate trying to see through the bias against female rulers, but Mary deserves a higher score. Yes. Well, I think we did the similar thing for Elizabeth. She got quite a low scandal score, despite the fact there's quite a lot of quite yeah. juicy stuff. And maybe our lesson, you know, if we were, say, to do more reviewing of female mm. figures in history yeah. in the future that maybe we need to be a little bit more accepting of the scurrilous rumour. Because although it's good to point out that, you know, history is mm. written by A, the winners, and B, men, mm. um, you know, the likes of William Rufus, all those fun stories with his pointy shoes and mood mm. lighting that the monks wrote, might not all have been true, but we were like, ah, oh, this is fun. Scandal! Yeah, scandal, yeah, true. So actually, if there is scandal, mm. you know, they may not be guilty of it, but actually it is still a scandalous thing going on, and maybe yeah. we should still be giving these points for scandal, even though we acknowledge that some of this may just be scurrilous male yeah. writers. and Because we... otherwise we're just not going to give any women yeah. high scandal scores, because we're a bit too yeah, exactly. reasonable. Yeah, exactly, we're too reasonable, whereas with the blokes we're very happy to accept it. All right, good point. So that is uh, it for James VI. He yeah. does have the Rex Factor, hey. and he will join the other 12 Scottish monarchs in the playoffs, which will be coming relatively soon. We will not be waiting another two months. I don't have Was to do... Was it two months? But obviously I've done all the research already, so I yeah, don't have yeah, to do yeah. too much reading yeah. of books whilst also bringing up Davy. So yeah. we will be back with the playoffs. The next episode will be the playoff draw. Yep. We find out how that system is going to work, who's yep. fighting off against who. 
Yeah. And then we'll see who will be crowned the X Factor champion of Scotland. Exciting. But until then, it's goodbye for me. Cheerio. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilakoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now.